0: Hi, my name is Julie Fink with the Front Porch People. We'd like to thank Visible Voice Books for sponsoring the Novel Conversations giveaway, which gives listeners a chance to win all eight classic novels featured in our third season. Visible Voice Books is our local go-to for delving into our favorite books in a relaxed, inviting environment. And if you're not here in Cleveland, Ohio, you can always support Visible Voice Books by shopping online at visiblevoicebooks.com.
1: Welcome. I'm Frank Lavalu and this is Novel Conversations. This week's Novel Conversation is about the novel For Whom the Bell Tolls by Ernest Hemingway. And I'm joined in my conversation today by our Novel Conversations readers, Ildi and Scott Rich. Ildi and Scott, welcome. Hello.
2: Hi Frank, thanks for having us.
1: Oh, absolutely, thanks for coming in and talking to me about today's novel, For Whom the Bell Tolls. Before we get started, let me read a quick summary. Published in 1940 and set in Spain during the Civil War in the late 1930s, For Whom the Bell Tolls is the story of Robert Jordan, an American fighting on the side of the Republican or Loyalists against the National Fascists. Sent by his superiors in the spring of 1937 to bomb a bridge with the help of some local partisans, Robert Jordan must fight through the distrust of the partisans, the cavalry of the fascists, and the love of a woman to complete his mission. How Robert Jordan survives his battles and fulfills his orders make up the story of For Whom the Bell Tolls. Ildi, was this the first time you read For Whom the Bell Tolls?
2: No, I've read this novel before when I was a teenager. Can't remember exactly how old I was, but I do remember the general impression that it left me. I right away remembered the quote from John Donne in the beginning, and I remembered the strong characterizations, especially of Pilar. There are some very strong women portrayed in this novel.
1: I got to tell you, I think the character Pilar was probably my favorite character in the novel, and I do want to talk more about her. And of course, we're gonna talk about the John Donne quote where Ernest Hemingway gets the title for his novel. But I wanna turn to you, Scott. I know this was the first time you read the novel, but I also know you've done some study on the Spanish Civil War. And what I would really like you to explain for our listeners is what's going on in the Spanish Civil War. I said that the loyalists or Republicans and the Nationalists, fascists. Can you clear that up for us?
3: I can try. It's often a very confusing thing. Essentially, there are two sides the Nationalists versus the Republicans. When we say Nationalists, there are several groups that formed that large group. It included two different groups of monarchists, both supporting different royal families, a group of fascists, and a large number of Catholics, including a large contingent of Irish volunteers.
1: But it was actually the monarchy that was first overthrown by the Republicans.
3: Yes, the monarchy was overthrown by a united group known as the Republicans, but it consisted of communists, socialists, anarchists, actually is the largest single group, as well as general anti-clerics. And they formed a parliament and tried to suppress the other groups. And that's when the Civil War broke out.
1: Right, the fact that there were so many communists in this new parliament, the fact that, as you said, there were so many anti-clerics, really infuriated those who had been in power and those who wanted their power back.
3: Correct. And more than just the power-hungry, there were more than 3,000 priests, nuns, and religious brothers who were executed in the first few months of this war. Executed by the communists. Also called the Republicans, who were at that point controlling Madrid.
1: And that's what whipped up a lot of this national fervor, what happened to these priests. Yes. But then, Scott, what was an American doing in the middle of this mess?
3: Well, like I mentioned, there are a lot of Irish volunteers on the nationalist-slash-fascist side There were many volunteers from various countries, including many Americans volunteering for various missions for the Republicans slash communists, not to mention many Russian volunteers or advisors sent by Stalin himself.
1: But Ildi, I understand you don't really care what side was fighting what side. This novel had something else for you.
2: For me, this novel is not necessarily about who's right, who's wrong, which side is justified in their battle. It's about the individuals in it. And we've got a band of people that you grow to care about. And also you realize that there are good and bad men on both sides.
1: And not all the good men are all good, and not all the bad men are all bad. Exactly. And that's probably why you've never forgotten the John Donne quote that Ernest Hemingway uses to open the novel, For Whom the Bell Tolls. Can you read that quote for us now?
2: Sure. John Donne says, No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of a continent, a part of the main. Any man's death diminishes me, because I am involved in mankind, and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. And this dates back to the tradition of ringing the bells at a funeral. Whenever all the townspeople would hear the bells ringing, they would know that someone has died and that there is a funeral going on. John Donne is saying that when the bells are ringing, you know that it's not just for that person. It's also for you because you are diminished because someone has died.
1: Very good. All right, Scott, tell me how our novel starts.
3: Our novel begins with a nature scene. Robert Jordan, our main character, is laying on the forest floor on top of some pine needles, looking at a military map and deciding if he's going to go and look at the bridge, which is his mission to destroy, or go hide the explosives.
1: This almost starts the same way a farewell to arms starts. It's a very pastoral, quiet, peaceful scene in the woods.
3: Everything that Spain is meant to be.
1: And then all of a sudden we realize we're in the middle of a war. Right. He's got to blow up a bridge.
3: He's not alone, though. No, he's with an old man named Anselmo, who we get very attached to. He's a wonderful old man. Now, who is Anselmo? Anselmo is a partisan volunteer. He's working with the Republican side. He's working essentially as a bandit out in the woods.
1: But Ildi, his role right here is to act as a guide for Robert Jordan, get him to the bridge that has to be blown up, and then help him meet the actual group of partisans that are going to help him with this mission. Exactly. Quickly, Scott, let's talk about Robert Jordan's mission. He's been sent by a General Galtz to actually blow up this bridge, but it's not so much just blowing up the bridge, it's the timing of the bridge being blown up that's very important.
3: Yes, General Galtz sends Robert Jordan to very discreetly prepare to blow the bridge to prevent the opposing forces from sending reinforcements.
1: But Scott, Robert Jordan and Anselmo are not going to do this mission alone.
3: No, Anselmo is leading Robert Jordan to the hideout where there are several individuals.
1: Essentially, the partisans have collected themselves into what we would call today cells, small
3: little groups acting independently. Also in conjunction with a larger military entity.
1: And that's sort of what Robert Jordan is doing He's trying to use a couple of these separate groups to pull off this mission.
3: He's an expert sent in to see the job is done, done correctly, done on time, with the assistance of the various cells hiding out in the mountains.
1: Now, Ildi, the leader of this particular partisan group is Pablo. What do we know about Pablo?
2: Pablo is a heavy, beard-stubbled man who is very round and has a propensity to drink.
3: According to Robert Jordan, he has the stature and eyes of a pig.
1: And also according to Robert Jordan, Pablo's common-law wife was even uglier.
3: Quite ugly.
2: But she has a very vibrant and dynamic personality that attracts many men, as well as the loyalty of the men in the band.
1: She was a great character, isn't
2: she? Pilar is the greatest character in this book, I think.
3: All right, who else is in this cave with Pablo and his common-law wife, Pilar? Well, Anselmo, we've mentioned... There's also Agustin, a gypsy named Raphael. There's a pair of brothers and a young lady named Maria.
1: Ildi, what's Pablo's reaction when Robert Jordan tells him what his mission is?
2: Pablo immediately is fearful. He knows that their placement in the mountains is shaky. And he knows that if this happens, they will have to leave what they think is a comfortable place to be living. And they will have to escape because it is such a big mission that they're doing that immediately forces will come to eradicate the bands from the mountains.
1: Right. Pablo doesn't like the idea of making a big mess in his own backyard.
2: And Robert Jordan realizes this about Pablo and sees in him that there is something wrong. So he makes a mental note to himself that whenever Pablo is going to be friendly to him, that's when he'll know Pablo is going to do something bad.
1: Scott, what do the other partisans think about this idea of blowing up a bridge literally in their backyard? I would summarize it as, blow
3: stuff up? That sounds great.
1: And this is where we meet Maria. Ildi, what do we know about Maria?
2: Maria was being held captive by the fascist nationalists. She escapes. That is when the band of Pablo finds her and rescues her.
1: And she's been helping out Pilar with the cooking and taking care of these men. And she's come a long way. Yes.
2: When she was first with them, she was obviously like a scared rabbit. Fearing any kind of physical danger. Plus, she's also dealing with the trauma of what she remembers happened to her.
1: All right, the next thing that happens in our novel is once Robert Jordan has settled into this cave with the partisans, it becomes time for him and Anselmo to go and reconnoiter the bridge.
3: Yeah, they head to the bridge, and Robert Jordan's going to end up drawing a sketch and making his plan of attack. But more important than that is the walk to and from, as Robert Jordan and Anselmo discuss their philosophies of the war, essentially. Anselmo, you get very attached to him because he sees the necessity for this war, but he hates the war. He understands he has to kill people, but he hates doing so.
1: Right. He's a hunter and he has no trouble hunting for food and killing animals.
3: Killing men is different for him. Yes. And ironically, Robert Jordan is the opposite. He has no problem killing men that he thinks should die, but he hates to see an animal be killed.
1: You know, there's a saying among soldiers that there's no atheists in a foxhole. But Anselmo actually says the opposite. For him, there's no God in the foxhole. and Anselmo says, yes, I have killed, and I will kill again. But if I live later, I will try to live in such a way, doing no harm to anyone, that it will be forgiven. And Robert Jordan asks, forgiven? Forgiven by whom? Who knows, since we do not have God here anymore, neither his son nor the Holy Ghost. Who forgives? I do not know. You have not God anymore, Robert Jordan asks? No, man, certainly not. If there were God, never would he have permitted what I have seen with my eyes. Let them have God. Well, they claim him, Robert Jordan says. And Anselmo answers, Clearly I miss him, having been brought up in religion, but now a man must be responsible to himself. And then, Scott, it's after this visit to the bridge when they get back to the cave that really we get our first confrontation, let's say?
3: Yeah, that's a good way to put it. It's a very tense moment when Paolo makes it publicly known to the band that he does not approve this mission. Because it will result in the opposing force sending in uh, soldiers to eradicate them from these mountains.
1: Sure, they blow this bridge and the hammer comes crushing down on them. Exactly.
3: And so Robert Jordan is sitting at the table with his hand on the trigger of his revolver, ready to shoot Pablo from under the table, if it gets any more tense.
1: Well, but right now it's only words that are being exchanged. Heated words, certainly but there's been no threats.
3: Very heated. And in the end, Pilar is going to take control of the band and essentially has a coup overthrowing Pablo.
1: What is the result of this confrontation between Pablo, Pilar, and Robert Jordan?
2: Pilar thinks that he's gone sour, and she even warns Robert Jordan to guard his explosives well. She fears that he will try to thwart their mission. Robert Jordan's question is, well, can we trust him? Is there anyone else that we can look to for help? And Pilar says, there is another man in another band called El Sordo, and he is the leader there. And Robert Jordan asks, is this man a good man? And Anselmo says, he is as good as the other is bad. So El Sordo is to be trusted, and Pablo is not.
1: In fact, Ildi, Pilar essentially chases Pablo out of the cave with a few choice words.
2: Pilar has a great quote here that is typical of this novel in that she is using obscenities.
1: Well, now, wait a minute. Can you read that quote on radio?
2: I can read this quote on radio because there are no obscenities.
1: Wait a minute. It's an obscenity-laced tirade with no obscenities?
2: Exactly.
1: You are going to have to read that for us.
2: Here, just listen. Pilar says... What are you doing now, you lazy, drunken, obscene, unsayable son of an unnameable, unmarried, gypsy obscenity? What are you doing? She did it.
1: She did it without using a single bad word.
2: I think Hemingway did it. It's great because there are no obscenities in the novel. However, they have a clever way of disguising obscenities where you know what they're saying.
1: And after that unsayable and unprintable quote, Hemingway changes pace here really fast. We go from a moment where there's almost a killing to a quite a different kind of interlude. It's right after this scene in the cave where Pablo confronts Robert Jordan and Pilar about his feelings about this mission that Hemingway gives us, I don't know if it's a strange interlude, but it's certainly a discordant interlude. Ilda, do you want to tell us what happens between Robert and Maria?
2: Robert Jordan is going to spend the night not in the cave, but in his sleeping robe or his sleeping bag outside and he is nestling down for the evening, and who should come out but the young girl Maria.
1: She's almost sent out there, is that about right?
2: Pilar sends Maria out because she has a strange idea that if Maria can fall in love with someone, she might forget some of the atrocities that happened to her.
1: And Scott, when Maria comes out to Robert, this is where we start to get a little bit of her story.
3: We learn at this point that she was repeatedly violated by the fascist nationalist side,
1: While she was their prisoner.
3: And she's trying to put that behind her. Both
1: she and Pilar think this is a good way to do it. Right. What does Robert think? All aboard. But Ildi, there are some very tenderly written moments here.
2: When Maria was held captive by the fascist nationalists, one of the first things they did to her was to shave her head. This was very traumatic for her. However, when she comes to this band, they all affectionately called her Crophead. It also becomes a term of endearment for Robert. He calls her my little rabbit. And one of the first touching scenes is when he rubs his hand across her head and she looks at him and says, I've been waiting for you to do that all day.
1: And right after we have this brief little interlude with Robert and Maria, we're brought right back to the war. The first thing they hear when they wake up?
2: The planes coming.
3: Yeah, a large number of planes from the nationalist fascist side veer right over their heads and it scares them half to death.
1: Are they sure at this point whether they're friendly planes?
3: Robert Jordan is certain right away he knows they're not friendly planes.
2: And this leads him to the conclusion that the other side knows about their offensive.
3: And they
1: may be massing planes close by. Mm -hmm.
2: So that the blowing of the bridge may be...
3: Pointless. Exactly.
1: But we don't know for sure.
3: Not yet.
2: We won't know for a
1: while. Now, it's on this morning that Robert, Pilar, and Maria need to set out on a short trip to talk to the other partisan commander... El Sordo. Can you tell me a little bit about that journey to see El Sordo? We actually get an interesting story from Pilar during this trip.
2: One of the most memorable of the novel. As they're going along, she tells of the glory days of Pablo.
1: Robert, I think, asks her a question, were you there at the beginning, meaning the beginning of the Civil War?
2: Right. And she tells Robert Jordan about how it was when they first started taking the small villages.
3: Scott, it's quite a story. Oh, it's a horrific, brutal story. Pablo, right away, knew what was happening, and he leads a revolt against the local contingent of soldiers. He takes their fort.
1: Well, you say contingent, basically, at this point, this is pre-war.
3: Right. It was just a small general outpost that you would have in any part of Spain. They were expecting nothing, and overnight, he surrounds them, blows up the wall, kills some of them right away, and then executes the others after he's had them surrender. And this is their start of the revolution. And more than that, it's the start to their cleansing of the village itself of anyone they think is a fascist. Pablo has them gathered up in the church with a priest and one by one sends them down to bloody gauntlet.
2: Pilar describes the gauntlet as being almost hesitant to kill when they send the first man out. After the first one has been beaten and chopped, chopped and sent over the cliff, the next person to come out is much quicker. It seems that the gauntlet, the line, has turned from an organized killing of the fascists into a bloodthirsty mob.
1: Right. At first, they're almost acting politically. They're taking political action against the rulers of their town. But with a little bit of wine and a little bit of bloodlust, it really just turns into a drunken mob.
2: And Pilar is disgusted with how they treat some of the later victims.
1: She believes the fascists should die but not the way they're killed.
2: No, there's 20 to 30 pages of this killing that goes on, and they describe it in such explicit tones that it's hard to encapsulate it all.
1: But I'll tell you, as scary as this story was, what she says at the end, to me, was even scarier.
2: Yes, Robert Jordan asks her if this was the worst day that she has seen, and Pilar says, no, it wasn't. This was only the second worst scene. Maria asks, what was the other? And Pilar says... Three days later, when the fascists took the town.
1: Just the simplicity of that line really struck me.
2: But what this whole huge scene tells me is that these are the people who we're trying to root for, and yet they can do these horrible, hideous things.
1: And it's as you said at the beginning of our conversation. Not all the good people are all good, and not all the bad people are all bad. Exactly. Scott, as we said, this conversation was taking place on the journey to meet the other partisan commander, El Sordo. Can you tell me a little bit about that meeting between El Sordo and Robert Jordan?
3: El Sordo is very happy to meet Robert Jordan. He's excited about the plan. He recognizes right away, just like Pablo, this is going to ruin the good thing we got going here. But so be it. This is what needs to be done. Let's have some whiskey now.
1: So, Scott, essentially El Sordo agrees that he's going to help out Robert Jordan and Pablo's band to take down this bridge. So Robert Jordan, Maria, and Pilar head back to Pablo's cave. But when they get back to the cave, there's another confrontation with Pablo. Right. What's happening now?
3: It's begun to snow, and it's bad for the mission. Why? It leaves tracks.
1: And they were going to use horses to get close to this bridge and move some of the material.
3: Right. So any movement they make can be observed, at least after the fact, by the enemy forces.
2: Well, it's really bad because El Sordo was going to get more horses. Because if they're going to make their escape, they need to steal more horses so that everyone can get out. If El Sordo is tracked in the snow, then that's bad because they need El Sordo's men to help with the mission.
1: And sure enough, it snows and it brings
2: trouble. Precipitation always brings trouble in Hemingway novels. And
3: Scott, what's the trouble that comes with this
2: precipitation?
3: Pablo, at this point, is absolutely convinced this has nothing good for them. They're all going to die if this goes down. To make it a little more intense, he has been drinking obscene amounts of wine while they were gone at El Sordo's. And there's this extremely tense moment where Pablo, Agustin, and Robert Jordan are trying to provoke one another. get gets so far as for Agustin to literally punch Pablo several times. Pablo says, I cannot be provoked. You can try anything. I will not give you an excuse just to kill me. And then he storms out to check on the horses.
1: And it's while Pablo's gone in the snow that Robert Jordan expresses, at least to himself, some doubts as well about this mission now.
2: He thinks that this may be an impossible mission. He says, everything looks great on paper, and yet he quotes the old proverb, paper bleeds little.
1: But Scott, it's not just the mission he's worried about he's now concerned about what's going to happen to these partisans after they blow this bridge.
3: He's allowed himself to become
1: attached. And it's after this conversation that Pablo comes back. And he's changed.
2: Pablo is all of a sudden friendly. I think we can do this mission. I think it's possible. And this sends off bells in Robert Jordan's mind. He remembers way back in the beginning, he told himself, if Pablo is ever friendly, that's my warning. I know he's going to turn.
1: But before Robert Jordan can spend too much time worrying about Pablo and his possible reformation, trouble comes into the camp.
2: Just as Robert Jordan and Maria are waking up, Robert Jordan hears a horse. Before he can think too much about it, he grabs his gun, sets his sights, and kills the man on the horse.
1: Killing this cavalryman, though, is not a good idea.
2: It turns out that this man is just a tracker, a scout.
1: And whose tracks are they actually following?
2: El Sordo's.
1: El Sordo, the captain from the other partisan cell, he's now gathered the horses he promised Jordan, and it's those horses' tracks that basically the soldiers are following right back to El Sordo's camp.
2: Right. So Robert Jordan has to do some quick thinking. If this man came into camp, they need to follow his tracks out of camp. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Pablo is very surprised by Robert Jordan's quick thinking, and he says, I'll take the horse. I will lead it out of the camp so that if there are any other men, they'll come and follow me.
3: Pablo leads this horse off, and the rest of them go hide, and four more cavalrymen come riding up.
1: But Robert Jordan has had a little time to think now, and he realizes probably killing the first one wasn't a good idea. Killing these next four, probably still not a good idea.
3: Right, because 20, 30 more come up right behind those four.
1: But thankfully for Robert Jordan, Pablo, and the partisans, The cavalry doesn't see them.
3: Thankfully for Pablo, yes. Unfortunately for El Sordo and El Sordo's band.
1: What do you mean by that?
3: Because they pick up the tracks that El Sordo made in the night because the snow stopped. And they go straight to El Sordo's camp and you can hear gunfire.
1: So the fact that El Sordo was gathering horses and men to eventually help Robert Jordan and these partisans blow up the bridge brings about his death. Correct. And it's not a very pretty death.
3: No.
2: El Sordo's last stand. El Sordo and his men are at the top of a hill, and El Sordo likens this hill to a canker. They're so visible from every side. It is the worst place to make a stand.
1: The cavalry officer at least has some smarts. He doesn't try to take this hill with his cavalry.
2: No, he's waiting for the airplanes to come to bomb them out.
1: And that's exactly what happens.
2: Actually, El Sordo wants to take as many men with him as he can, so El Sordo and his men shoot five times to pretend as if they've all committed suicide, and they remain absolutely silent. So one brave soldier keeps coming up the hill. I'm not afraid of them. Kill me, kill me, kill me. And El Sordo's laughing. And all of a sudden, they hear the planes coming. And so El Sordo says, well, I'll take this one guy and shoots him.
1: And then, of course, the planes take them all out. Yeah. And while this is happening... Robert Jordan, Pilar, Pablo, and the other partisans, along with Maria, have to listen to this battle and know they can't do anything about it.
3: Right. If they go to assist, they'll be dead as well.
2: And the mission for the bridge will be destroyed.
1: In fact, with El Sordo and his men gone, Robert Jordan now has second thoughts about carrying out this mission. He doesn't think he can do it with the people he has left. So he comes up with a plan to try to stop the attack and let the general know this is not a good time to do it.
3: Yeah, he realizes that the nationalist fascists are prepared for their attack. So he sends Andres, one of the two brothers, to deliver this message to General Goltz.
1: But Illy, Robert Jordan doesn't know if Andres is going to get through to General Goltz, So he needs to continue planning to blow up this bridge. And even though they're heavy at heart and very saddened by what happened to El Sordo, they know that when the morning comes, they've got to blow that bridge.
2: Yes, so Robert and Maria have one last night together. And in the morning, they have a rude awakening.
3: That awakening comes from Pilar, who shakes Robert Jordan out of his sleep and says, Pablo is gone. And he's taken something from your explosives bag. Come look and see.
2: So
1: really, a moment that we've been expecting throughout this entire novel finally happens. Pablo has turned on his crew and has become a traitor.
2: Exactly. He's taken the exploder, the pack detonators, the fuse, and the caps, which makes it next to impossible for them to blow the bridge.
1: But Robert Jordan is a good soldier.
3: And he quickly thinks of a way to get it done, although it makes it far more dangerous and less likely that they will be able to escape.
1: He comes up with a plan to use hand grenades instead of detonators in order to blow the explosive package. Right. But then Pablo returns again. Ta-da! But he doesn't have the dynamite.
2: He threw the dynamite over a cliff into the river, and yet he comes back with five men.
3: And five horses.
2: And five horses from another band.
3: Pablo apologizes, but he says, I know I did wrong, but I did what I could to make up for it. We now have just enough men to make this happen. And by the way, we will have enough horses to escape.
2: Wink, wink, nod, nod.
3: The other guys might not make it through the day.
2: So Pablo is basically going to assassinate the men that he just brought to help them.
3: After they help him and before they take their horses.
2: Exactly.
1: So Scott, let's blow this bridge. How does Robert Jordan set up his plan?
3: Well, he gathers what remaining dynamite he has left and goes through a pile of grenades, which the partisan band has been collecting. He's going to attach one of each type of grenade to make sure at least one of them will go off with each bundle of dynamite and then get a long wire and yank the firing pins on these grenades and blow the whole thing to smithereens.
1: Now you say a long wire. The problem with not having the detonator caps, though, is that whoever pulls that wire is going to have to be a lot closer to the explosion than normally they would
3: have been far more vulnerable.
1: And how does he set up the rest of the partisans? Who's doing what?
3: Robert Jordan has just enough men to do everything that needs to be done. He has Maria watching the horses. He and Anselmo are positioning the dynamite on the bridge. Pablo and his five soldiers, which he recruited in the night, are attacking a group of sentries, which would be in hearing distance. And Pilar and the rest of their band are attacking another separate unit of sentries who would be able to hear what was going on.
1: But even though Robert and Anselmo are laying the dynamite and planning to blow this bridge, Robert is still hoping that Andreas gets through to General Galtz and can stop this attack because he knows if he blows this bridge, they're all going to die.
2: While this is all going on, Andreas has been struggling to get to General Galtz to deliver his message. However, right when he finally gets to General Galtz, the planes go overhead and you know that this cannot be stopped.
1: And Scott, sure enough, the planes come by, they start their attack, Robert knows that's the single, and he and Anselmo blow that bridge.
3: Right. And the bridge, parts of it, right in the middle where they put the dynamite, is blown sky high, and then shards and chunks and debris of fiery metal rain down upon them.
1: In fact, the shrapnel kills Anselmo. Right. Because he had to be so close to blow the dynamite. Pablo, though, he's making out all right right now, isn't he?
2: Pablo has taken out the sentries that he was charged with. And on his way back to the main group, he has, in essence, assassinated all five of the men that he has recruited.
1: For their horses. So do
2: they escape? Some of them.
3: Who doesn't? Well, they're trying to ride quickly away from the scene of the crime. The nationalist fascists can see their escape route. And one by one, they ride off with horses uphill trying to evade the cannon fire. And the last rider catches the last shell.
1: Let me guess, it's Pablo on his favorite horse. If only. Who's our last rider?
3: Robert Jordan. Robert Jordan gets killed? Not quite. He only has his femur shattered.
2: It's sticking out at a right angle, I believe. And he knows that he will no longer be able to make the escape with the rest of the men. And at this moment, he realizes that Maria is going to want to stay with him, to die with him right there. And he, in a very agonizing and emotional scene, he makes her leave with the rest of the men. He basically tells her that he is a part of her now and that if she leaves, a part of him will go too. And it's the only way that he will survive is through her.
1: You know, as brutal and as barbarous and as gory as some of the scenes we've seen in this novel, this scene was tough to take, tough to read.
2: I shed many tears.
1: As did I. And is that how our novel ends?
2: Not quite. Our novel ends with Robert Jordan, like El Sordo, wanting to take out as many men that are coming after them as possible. So he sets up his machine gun on a tripod and waits for the oncoming soldiers so that he can give the rest of the band enough time or at least delay them a bit so that they can escape.
3: We don't really know if he's going to be successful in that because he's bleeding very severely. Hemingway writes in the very last paragraph, He was waiting until the officer reached the sunlit place where the first trees of the pine forest joined the green slope of the meadow. He could feel his heart beating against the pine needle floor of the forest.
1: The first line of our novel and the last line of our novel are almost identical. Right. Full circle. So now, Scott and Ildi, is the time for you to tell me about a character we didn't get a chance to talk about, or perhaps a moment that you wish we'd spend a little more time on, maybe a favorite quote. Scott, do you have something?
3: I have a favorite line from Augustine, who's reflecting on the whole war, and he's rather disgusted in many ways. And there's a lot of guilt in him for having to kill people. And he says, I hope I am not for the killing. I think that after the war, there will have to be some great penance done for the killing. If we no longer have religion after the war, then I think there must be some form of civic penance organized, that all may be cleansed from the killing, or else we will never have a true and human basis for living.
1: That's a great one.
2: Yeah, I like that one too. Bill,
1: did you have one? I
2: actually love the symbolism in the novel. And the theme of rabbits comes through a lot. When Robert Jordan and Maria were sleeping in their sleeping bag, when the tracker comes up and Robert Jordan has to kill him, Raphael, the gypsy, was not watching his post. And he comes up to Robert Jordan grinning, carrying two big hairs, one in each hand. And Robert Jordan says, where the obscenity have you been? And the gypsy says, I tracked them. I got them both. And they had made love in the snow. And that's where he killed them. And it's totally ironic that Robert Jordan and Maria, the two rabbits, were here. And then the trouble came and Raphael was off killing two rabbits in the snow. It just struck me as being a little bit funny.
3: And morbid.
2: And morbid. (laughs) It's all right. The two are not mutually exclusive.
3: Scott, do you have another line or two? I got a good one here. Robert Jordan at one point compares the Spanish Civil War to the U.S. Civil War, and he dwells on one of the more infamous of U.S. Civil War generals, McClellan, not known for fighting or bravery. He writes, It was overrun with McClellans, though. The fascists had plenty of McClellans, and we had at least three of them.
1: (laughs) So you're telling me that the president had to keep changing generals until he found a general that would do what he wanted and do it well.
3: Right. In fact, he goes on to write, they ended up ousting everyone and bringing in russians to command the entire republican communist side
1: you know it's interesting that you chose a quote to compare the spanish civil war with the american civil war i chose a quote to compare the spanish republicans with the american republicans it's pilar talking to robert about his politics are you a communist robert no i'm an anti-fascist for a long time robert since i've understood fascism and how long is that for nearly 10 years That's not much time, the woman said. I've been a Republican for 20 years. My father was a Republican all his life, Maria said. And it was for that that they shot him. My father was also a Republican all his life. Also my grandfather, Robert Jordan said. In what country? United States. Did they shoot them, the woman asked? Que va, Maria said. The United States is a country of Republicans. They don't shoot you for being a Republican there. All the same, it is a good thing to have a grandfather who was a Republican, the woman said. It shows a good blood. My grandfather was on the Republican National Committee, Robert Jordan said. That impressed even
3: Maria. The irony of that is American Republicans were quite the opposite of what the Spanish Republicans happened to be. Absolutely. And Hildy?
2: Well, I've got another one since Pilar is my favorite character in the novel. I have a quote about her talking about her being ugly. She says, I was born ugly. All my life I've been ugly. You, Inglés, that's Robert Jordan, who know nothing about women, do not know how an ugly woman feels. Do you know what it is to be ugly all your life and inside to feel that you are beautiful? I would have made a good man, but I am all woman and all ugly. Yet many men have loved me, and I have loved many men. It just shows how great Pilar is.
1: (laughs) She was also my favorite character. And with that, I think we'll end our conversation today on the novel For Whom the Bell Tolls by Ernest Hemingway. I want to thank our Novel Conversations readers, Ildi and Scott Rich, for coming in and having a conversation with me today. It's been an absolute pleasure.
3: Absolutely.
1: I'm glad you both had a good time. I know I enjoyed having both of you in here today as well. Joining me now for end notes on today's conversation is our researcher, Ted Schwartz. Ted, how are you today? Great, how are you? I'm very good. Listen, got a couple questions for you about both the novel and the author, but let's start with Ernest Hemingway. Ted, regardless of what you think of Ernest Hemingway today, he was and is still considered one of the great American novelists. But is it true that he would have rather be considered one of the great American war correspondents? It's hard to tell. But Ted, that is how he started out. What we know is that the bulk of his writing
0: as nonfiction, which was not that successful, had to do with war and the coverage of war. His real success came from his fiction. And we know from his later life that this was a man who loved to write. So no matter what his dreams may have been, the
1: act of writing mattered. And his success came with his fiction. Was he any more successful writing the nonfiction after he'd had the success of writing some of his novels? No, and I think
0: part of that, for whatever reason, he wasn't in the midst of it. When he watched D-Day, he did it from the cliffs.
1: Martha Gilhorn, who was still married to him at the time, went in with the troops. Well, Ted, you're a professional writer of both fiction and nonfiction. You tell me, isn't it possible he found a greater truth about war in his fiction than he ever could have as a war correspondent writing nonfiction war stories? I think we find a better truth in the
0: fiction. He had been writing nonfiction about this, covering it for a couple of years. For Whom the Bell Tolls is a man's story. It's a story of heroism, literally unto death, placed in wartime. He's telling the story of men in wartime. He's not really telling of that war. I think that's an effective story that could have been told in a number of contexts, but Hemingway's world at that time was war, and he put it very effectively in a war
1: zone. Well, I have to tell you, the readers and I found it to be very effective and very impactful. And I know you have an anecdotal tale about another reader who found the novel, For Whom the Bell Tolls, also to be very effective and impactive. Yes, that was a man named John McCain,
0: who was a 13-year-old kid, picked up the book, and was fascinated by Robert Jordan. He became his hero. He's from a military family, aware of war, aware of leadership, aware of heroism. But this was something very concrete to him. And when he grew up, went to war, became a prisoner of war in Vietnam. One of the things he has now said that sustained him was the memory of Robert Jordan, his courage, his dedication, and that was how that book possibly saved his life.
1: You know, it's stories like that, Ted, that make me value our EndNote segment every week on Novel Conversations. Thank you very much for bringing that story to us. You're welcome. And that's where we'll end today's conversation about the novel, For Whom the Bell Tolls. I also want to thank our Novel Conversations readers, Ildi and Scott Rich, for coming in and having this conversation with me today. You've been listening to Novel Conversations. Today I had a conversation about the novel For Whom the Bell Tolls by Ernest Hemingway. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo and until next week, I hope you find yourself in a Novel Conversation. Novel Conversations is a production of The Front Porch People. Listen to more great conversations at thefrontporchpeople.com.
2: you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever
3: you listen to your favorite podcasts.
2: This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.